0: My guest in this Read All About It podcast is Karen Jones, who is a prose writer from Glasgow, who has a preference for flash and short fiction. She is addicted to writing competitions and is a perennial long-stroke shortlister. Her work is published in numerous e magazines and anthologies. Her story, Small Mercies, was nominated for Best of the Net, the Pushcart Prize, and is included in the Best Small Fictions 2019 as well. She's also one of the editors for Best British and Irish Flash Fiction for 2019-20, and says that, quote, mainly I'll be looking for stories that make me stop and think and sigh and say, man, I wish I'd written that canon. Thanks very much for joining us on the podcast. Now, I mentioned that you have a preference for flash and and short fiction, and why is that in particular, that that's the kind of area of writing that you prefer?
1: It has sort of evolved that way. I started off when I first thought I wanted to try this writing thing, I decided, oh, will I write a novel? And I wrote possibly the worst novel ever written. <laughs> um, partly because I chose a genre I don't enjoy, I decided I would write a romantic novel. I don't read romance, I don't know why I did that. I hadn't learned anything about creative writing, so it was all tale, just no show. It yeah. was just awful. So after that, I thought, okay, I'll learn a wee bit about writing instead of just going gung-ho and thinking I can do this. So I, I did an online course, I did various things like that. I started reading lots and lots of short stories rather than novels just to see what I preferred. So then I thought, look, I'll, I'll try uh, short stories. Really enjoyed writing short stories, much more so than I had a hard slog of a novel, and then discovered flash fiction. That was through the BBC, I had a website called Get Writing, which was a fantastic resource for writers and someone on it ran a competition called the 60-word competition, so you had to complete a story in 60 words, mm. which is a wee bit like poetry then, because you start having to think about every single word has to earn its keep, you can't have a lot of description, you can't have backstory, and I became quite obsessed with that then, and that's just a love that's never left me. In fact, for most of this year, all I've read this year, are short story or flash collections, I've not read one novel this whole year, and that's the first time that's ever happened. <laughs>
0: Because it's a challenge as a, a writer. It's a in, huge challenge. I think sometimes people might presume that it's easier to write short stories or flash fiction mm-hmm. rather than novel, but it's, it's actually in, in many ways, because of what you said in terms of every word is precious, it's yeah. actually much it's a much more difficult skill.
1: Yeah, especially the flash. What you're looking for all the time in flash is what they call the white space, what you leave out. What you leave out is often as important as what you put in, because what you're leaving out, you're allowing the reader yeah to fill in all the blanks that you don't have the space for. So that's actually really difficult. It's knowing how much information to give and how much to hold back within a word count but still get the full story across. Yeah. So it is difficult. But and, I love
0: it. And I was intrigued as well, I think you'd put in Twitter recently that you're is it right you're writing a, a novel through in flash, a flash fiction novel, which yeah. really intrigued me. I thought that's yeah. That sounds certainly something I'd want to read.
1: It's great. I've read a lot of those this year. This is why I'm trying to do it myself. So basically, the way it has to work is that every single flash fiction should stand alone. If you took it out mm-hmm. of the novel, it should still make sense on its own. But once you put it all together, it should have a proper story arc. It should have everything that a nov- or, well a novella has. Um, because they're only there'll be maybe 8,000 to 20,000 words long when they are novellas rather than novels. But I've read... Quite a few of them this year, and some absolutely fantastic ones this year, and it really made me think. Yeah, I want to give this a go. Yeah, you're not making it easy for yourself. No. You? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I should also say as well, and it's one of the I'm I'm often conflicted about social media. I think there's there's some good po- points and some um, negative points. About Twitter, and I think you see it sometimes when there's big events, like you know, for example, for the the, the general election and yeah. stuff. I should say that you and I have only ever met before this podcast via Twitter, and I think that's always one of the positive aspects that you end up through social media getting yes. in touch and contact with other writers, for example, yeah. and, and that can be a really positive kind of community.
1: Definitely, I mean, there's a huge writing community. It's quite factional. I mean, you will get the flash fiction community, which are slightly separate from the rest of the writing community because we're all enter the same competitions or submitting to the same magazines, attending the same festivals and workshops. So we will end up meeting each other in real life. And I actually work now at the Bath Flash Fiction Festival. Every year I go down and work at that. Uh, basically, I get my accommodation and I get to attend all the workshops so long as I man reception mm-hmm. and work in the bar. And I also hold a couple of workshops as well. And it's a fantastic event. It's the only one, as far as we know, in the world that has because flash fiction has taken off so much in the past couple of years.
0: And how do flash fiction writers cope with the fact that you've got 280 characters now on Twitter?
1: Well, it was quite funny, actually. A lot of people complained. Right. <laughs> they felt it was too much. The brevity's gone, the challenge is gone, but, you know, it's fine. And there is actually uh, an account on Twitter, Mythic Picnic, and they run a tweet story competition. And there's a the $100 prize for the best tweet story and you've got three tweets to tell a flash right. so it's taken off there as well it's actually taken off as a tweet story genre on there
0: now yeah now for the, for the, the basis of this <laughs> podcast I say when I'm asking all the guests on it it's the same five questions and, and it's it's been great just to hear everybody's got their, their own choices yeah. as, as they go through their life and the first question is always uh, what's your favorite book from childhood
1: my favourite book from childhood, was my favourite author from childhood, uh, Ruth M. Arthur, who I only recently discovered was actually Scottish. She was born in Glasgow. I had no idea because none, well, to tell you, only one of her books was set in Scotland that I remember. But I don't have any physical copies of her books because as a child we didn't buy books. We went to the library. Everybody went to the library. You didn't really have books at home, maybe one or two that had been gifts or whatever. So I had no reference to go back and check why I loved those books so much. So I'm working purely from memory. Prior to Ruth M. Arthur, I, like every child at that era, I read lots of Ian Blyton, I read all that kind of stuff. And then one day in the library, and it was the book cover, and that is kind of a theme with me, it is quite often the cover that will draw me to the book. So the book cover is it's a girl standing burning something, you don't know what she's burning, but that just kind of caught my imagination, I thought, what is that? So the book itself is something that I wouldn't read now, because it's quite supernatural, and I've turned it into an absolute wuss. I mean, I couldn't read Stephen King if you paid me. I couldn't do anything like that. But those books were—they were always about something or someone who was possessed, which is my biggest fear. That's the thing that That's i will not watched. That's quite a serious subject for, yeah. for kids' books as well. Yeah. So, in that particular book, it's a doll called Dido that haunts, or possesses, or has a malevolent influence over. Generations of a family. Right. Again, with Arthur's books, tend to be like that. They tend to go generally generational. So you're also getting historical fiction in there as well as this great story. So I say the book, the doll Dido, and it's the description of the doll as well. I, I remember vividly because to me at that time a doll was Cindy or Barbie or that's what a doll looked like. Yeah. But this doll is just a wooden carved doll that's got no particular features. Kind of made me think of like the Oscars, like an Oscar but in wood. That's in my imagination what it looked like. And when I think of that, now, that's really creepy. Yeah. That's a really creepy Absolutely. doll yeah. for these girls to find. And it's only in each generation, it seems to be only one member of the family that the doll takes influence over. So yeah, that, that's my childhood one and it's yeah. always stuck with me. And what um, age would you have been, I, you have been to, I think probably about 11 because, or maybe even 10. I always read slightly. I ahead of is, where I should yeah. have been, according to the librarian. But my mother was an avid reader, and she knew what I could cope with. So mm-hmm. she was okay with me, having that book. And then I just read everything by Ruth Arthur. They're all out of print. You can't get them anywhere. Because I was
0: amazed when you'd sent the list, and I kind of just did a wee Google check, because I hadn't heard <laughs> it. And that, I, The first thing that struck me, she's born in Glasgow, and I thought, yep. why, yep. why have I never heard it? I them?
1: know, I know. And I say, I only found that out recently as well. But to buy her books now, you're buying them secondhand at £100. And much as I loved her, I cannot yeah. justify. It
0: just shows you how, how uh, rare yeah, they must be, and yeah, how, which yeah. is a and shame.
1: It's sad that they've become... Because I, I mentioned it on Twitter one day and lots of people come in and said, oh my God, I love those books. So it wasn't just me, you know. She had a huge following of that era, so that would have been, what, early 70s. And she had a huge following. But it's just all gone now, there's no, there's no way to get it. And it's, it's really quite devastating to think of that. that it intriguing
0: that, for you to, yeah. you know, as an adult, to get back and read That's it and see? Because obviously, it would give a different reaction.
1: That's what I wanted to do. I also wanted to do it from a point of view of sort of writing research as well. I thought, I've never thought about writing children's books, mm. but if I did, I'd like to read the ones that really affected me and see why and think, okay, well maybe I could write like that. So I can't do that, but I can't, I can't yet.
0: So you, you know, you, you said you read maybe slightly ahead of your years yes. and you were getting the books from the library. Did, you, did your mum ever check and see what you're reading or did you just kind of write as long as you're reading that's okay <laughs> just in case at any point you're getting a book from the library and she picks up and goes what are you <laughs> reading that for?
1: No she was all right because, we, it, because it was a small village and our library was a wooden hut right. uh, and you know we knew the librarian and she knew that the librarian was never going to let me walk out with something from the wrong section. Right. You know? Uh, and at that point, you were only allowed two library books per ticket. I think it's something like six now, in some places, as many as you like. I've got three brothers, none of whom were particularly big readers, and I was my dad. So my mum got all of them library tickets, and we just used their tickets <laughs> because we just read all the yeah, time. So yeah. we just had all these books. So she was a big like Catherine Cookson and all that kind of thing, uh, and I was obsessed with Ruth Emma. You know, she probably read my books as well because she would have read anything. So yeah. she probably picked them up and read them out of curiosity.
0: And was it something that you, as soon as you learned to read, was that just something that naturally you were really interested in and you just wanted to to devour books?
1: Absolutely obsessed. And Enid Blyton, bizarrely, when I think back on it now, I mean, Enid Blyton, all those children were these upper and middle class, really pretty horrible children when you think back on them. They were nothing like my life. But I became obsessed with them and started doing all all this precocious stuff (laughs) that I quite like a window seat where I could sit and read in our council house in your head, and my dad's, yeah, I'll get right on that, you know. <laughs> or I would find a tree to set up, because people in needed York books read in trees. Yeah, that shows you the, the
0: fact that the skill of the, of the writing, that yeah. you you're totally engage with I absolutely
1: it. wanted to be them. I wanted to be one of these terrible blinding children.
0: It was really interested when you said that the thing that caught your attention with that book, A Candle in the Room, was the cover, because yeah. I'm a big believer in... People do judge a book by its cover, yeah. and somebody once gave me a bit of advice. That if, if I was ever in a bookshop and I saw a copy of my book, for example, and you could just see the spine, just turn it out turn it. so that you could actually see the cover, or else yeah. take it away from the shelf and put it on one of the, the, the tables. Yeah, yeah, which I, which I have done. Although every time <laughs> I've ever done it, I'm always worried I bump into somebody and they think I'm, I'm such an egotist. I'm walking about buying my own book, but it's, tr- it's you definitely. I still do, do it now, and you, know, you, you catch a, a cover and, and that. Makes you pick it up, yeah.
1: And I think the sad thing about that recently, especially in women's fiction, and I hate that term, I'll just say it, women writers, there was this sort of homogenous book cover, the same colours were going around, the same typeface was being used, and it began, it all just began to meld into one. So the you, you were losing that impact of walking into a bookshop and something hit you, and you thought, oh, what it must is have been
0: frustrating for the writers because very each story is different, and and if they all could just get. Lumped into one whole body. A, a lot of people then will just turn their back on those books when there's lots of great books there. Yeah.
1: Well, a lot of them will maybe think, okay, and I don't mean to denigrate any particular genre, but maybe if somebody doesn't like me, doesn't read romance, and all the romance books are in those fonts and whatever, and then the books that I would normally read, maybe like Ali, Ali Smith or somebody like that, is also being put in that kind of cover. Then yeah, if I didn't know that's an Ali Smith book, I love her. I'll pick that up. I probably wouldn't go near it, and I do know friends who are quite well published authors who hate some of their own book covers. But as I'm sure you know, they don't have any say over Absolutely, that yeah. at all. Absolutely, At all, production is out of your hands.
0: Which I it never makes sense to me because I think the best books, probably the best publishers, are the ones that work hand in hand and come up with something that they're happy with, but the the authors happy with of as course. well. Because yeah. it's your, sure yeah. baby, you Absolutely. know. Absolutely. Your... Now, if we've we've leap from childhood and. The next question, and I've, I've, when I've phrased it, I've always said, "Kind of teenage stroke university, more yeah. formative years." Yeah. When you really, when you're starting to formulate your own reading tastes, and the book you've chosen is
1: John Steinbeck's *Tortilla Flat*. Um, I discovered three. I say discovered. It was at school that I first was taught Graham Greene and Hemingway, and I learned really quickly that I hated Hemingway and I loved Greene. And the teacher who championed Greene was also a big fan of Steinbeck. And he said to me, look, read Steinbeck, you're going to love Steinbeck, you're going to love the humour, you're going to love everything. And the first one I bought was Cannery Row, and he was right, I absolutely adored Cannery Row. But then I got to Tertia Flat, and that's the one that's always stuck with me because of the humour in Tertia Flat. So Tea Flat, eh, set in Monterey, which a lot of Steinbeck's books are, and most of his books are centred around very working class, often working class In theory only, in the sense that a lot of them don't work and don't particularly want to. They've got a lovely wee life. They're finding wine to drink and places to sit in the shade. And that's that's kind of the guys in tortilla flat. I like that. Until one of them, Danny, inherits two houses. And then everything changes. Because Danny's now a man of means, as far as his friends are concerned. And they spend the rest of the book working out how they can benefit from, from what Danny has now got. So at one point, the rest of them move into his second house. Supposedly with rent forthcoming, but the rent never, ever happens. I mean, you get to the end of the book and nobody's paid Danny a penny. But my favourite section in the book, and I just thought it said so much about not just these guys, but about every group of friends or every group of people from any particular class. They're going to see Danny and they buy wine. They've had a bit of a fallen out with him and they're going to take the wine to him as a gift and an apology and promise you again that they will pay this rent. So they get this big jug of wine, and it's quite a long walk from where they've bought the wine, and they start to get thirsty. So they think, we'll, we'll just have a sip of wine. He wouldn't grudge us that, he's a friend, he loves us. So they do that, and by the time they get to Danny's, they've reasoned away all of the wine. They've drunk all the wine, and their final thing is, well, we did him a favour because he's got a drinking problem. <laughs> And it's why I love Steinbeck. It's those tiny, tiny details of human nature and human interaction. And he makes them lovable. You know, everything about them is lovable. And I just, I adore Steinbeck. absolutely adore him.
0: And similar to the first book that you chose, what age would you have been when you read that?
1: Well, I was probably 17, I would think, because I was doing six-year studies English, which was the only way I could bear to go back to, to school, was if I was still doing English in six years. (laughs) Because <laughs> that was my favourite subject. Yeah. And I had my set authors, were Malamud, I can't even remember the other two now, but I hadn't taken to any of the set authors I'd been given. They were all quite bleak. And Steinbeck was my saviour from that point of view. I had to escape these really desperately bleak books I'd been given to study.
0: Because one of the things I've really enjoyed about doing this podcast is it's, there's a lot of it where you just end up with book recommendations and, and books that I'm thinking I'm going to read. Because I've read Of Mice and Men... I've read *The Grapes of Wrath*, which is for me, it's got, still for me. It's got the best ending to a book I've ever read. Yeah. Ever. It's one of the few books that you get to the end where you're actually in tears. But I haven't read uh, Tortilla uh, Flat*, so that's now it's now on my Fantastic. list. We also went and a couple of years ago went on a a trip down the Pacific Coast. And it was from uh, San Francisco to LA, and we started. Might have been Monterey. I'm not sure. There's a John Steinbeck Museum in one of the the places. Uh-huh. I can't remember the, the names of the town, but I just remember specifically thinking I want to go off the, the, the road that we were on because I just wanted to go and, and visit this museum because I, I'm like you, I think I think Steinbeck, the, the books I've read, East of Eden as well, yeah. Um, yeah. I've read, they're just These breathtaking. These are all the more serious books. Yeah. Um, which
1: I love as well, don't
0: get me wrong. Probably the, the Better known. It's more that, you know, and I think, as soon as I saw that last, I thought, right, that's a book I'm, I'm definitely going to have yeah. to read.
1: When The, the, the novellas... I mean, there really are novellas like Cannery Row and Sweet Thursday and Tortilla Flat. that. They are the ones where you find all his amazing humour and he is such a humorist. Which, if you read something like of Eden, you're, that's, you're not going to get that. You're not yeah. going to think, this guy's really funny. <laughs> but he is. But still a brilliant <laughs> storyteller. It's oh, interesting it's as
0: well, you you're mentioning <coughs> about your, your teacher and choosing you know, Hemingway or, or Graham Greene. You've got Steinbeck. When I was at school, uh, Catch-22 was the one in, in high school and yeah. we did for Hire... But I always, and I, again I've said in one of the previous podcasts, I used to have this, slightly still do have this real bugbear that when we were at school we never really get any Scottish literature. And it was only after I'd left and I'd, I'd you know, got into my twenties, suddenly discovered all this whole body of, of what by yeah. brilliant Scottish writers and brilliant Scottish books. And I'm thinking, why weren't we? Because that if you, get, yeah. if you read a book by somebody that comes from the same area, the same country as you, it means something different.
1: Yeah, there's people like you, there's people who speak like you and think like you, and have get these shared experiences that you're not really. And that, that, obviously, you shouldn't exclusively read that, otherwise, you're learning nothing about the rest of the yeah. world. But it does make you have this great connection. Uh, I mean, I absolutely adore Ali Smith and Ian Banks. And I, Ian M. Banks, I don't read science fiction, but I've read every Ian M. Banks because I loved his I'm the Ian exact Banks. Same books. For you. So I, I just felt I had to read everything the man wrote. Christopher Brookmeyer, you know, people like that. They're our people. They're yeah. and the characters they write about are people we know.
0: It's funny, one of the one of my favourite books is the Cone Gatherers Yes, I've Robin. never read it. Oh you and have My brother to, keeps telling me you have My to brother's an it.
1: English teacher and he he says every year, Have you read it yet? It's
0: incredible. <laughs> and there's a there's a, an edition that's out in the front cover, it's like a hand grenade on it. It's a really brilliant front cover. Mm-hmm. And the foreword is by Paul Giamatti, the mm-hmm. American actor. Who is a big fan of of Scottish fiction, and he re- and he writes this really brilliant. And I think he, he actually first discovered it. It was in a second-hand bookshop in San Francisco, and then read this book, which is just a, for me is just one of the best books ever. So, well, if, if nothing else, you take I away will, from I will, it, I will. and I'll be checking up to make sure <laughs> your brother's absolutely right. <coughs> yeah. Moving on, the next the next book, and again, it's always a, this is always a difficult one. I think a book that you would recommend to anyone because in any given day. You might yeah. think of something completely different, but the, the book you've chosen, again, it's, is, that, is yeah. a great book?
1: It wasn't actually difficult, this one. This one, although my top five books of all time will change constantly, this one has never left it, and it's A Prayer for Owen Meany by John Irving. Uh, we were actually going on holiday, and um, we were going to wait for three weeks, my husband and I are both avid readers, and we had 16 books that we were comfortably sure we would get through in three weeks, but we got to the airport. I'd never Nothing else in your luggage, just 16 really books in, what, and one what, change of clothes. No, yeah, that was <laughs> a pair of shops and 16 books. So I got to the airport and I'm just idling around W. Smith, I think it was, and I saw this book and I'd never really heard of everything. I think Garp was out as a movie at that yeah, time. The Robin so Holmes, I think yeah. I recognised that and I thought, okay. But then I saw that book and I loved the cover. There was an armadillo in the front of it. I wonder what that is. Read the back, oh, I'll just get it. And I go back and Alfie's looking at me going, you bought another book? We got on a holiday, I got into the apartment, and I started that book and refused to leave the apartment for two days. I wouldn't sunbathe, I wouldn't do anything, I just read that book. And he kept walking past me saying, it cannot be that good, no book is that good, just you wait. So when you I finished, he found me in tears, of course. He did found you not know just read it in the sunshine? But no, I couldn't, I wouldn't. I, it's not a book for reading the sunshine. <laughs> it's not, it's not that kind of book it's just you need to concentrate. So he found me in flood the tears at the end of it, of course, and then he read it and he did the same thing, he just we're not doing anything we're not going anywhere till I've finished this book.
0: Because it's extraordinary even just the, the way it's <sighs> written with o- Owen Meany, everything he says is in capital in letters. in capital
1: letters, the boy with the wrecked voice, yeah. yeah. And Owen, obviously for anyone who hasn't read the book, Owen's not, the narrator is John, and it's set in New Hampshire, and John becomes friends with Owen, Owen who, is described as the boy with the wrecked voice, and somehow now I was in my head here Gilbert Gottfried when I think of him. <laughs> <laughs> that screech, you know, that's what I get in my head now when I think of him, but I'd never heard of him at that point. But he's also described as having virtually translucent skin, and you can see through his ears. And he's so small, so underdeveloped that part of the the kids in the class love to pick him up and pass him round the class above their heads. But Owen believes he's got a higher purpose. He believes that God has a plan for him, that all of he wouldn't have been born this way, Mm -hmm. in this place, if he didn't have a higher purpose. Which, of course, everyone else just thinks he's delusional and arrogant and whatever. And in the end, he does have a higher purpose, which is the bit that reduces you to a puddle basically but there's so much humour and that's what John Irving does so well as well as doing these Irving's a massive Dickens fan and that is obvious when you read his books he does these massive I take it you then went and read I've read I went straight back to the start because Garp's a brilliant book Garp's a great book I went right back to the start the earlier books are a bit ropey Setting Free the Bears which I think was his first novel about halfway through it you see the Irving that you then see later hmm. in Gap And he also spends a lot of time kind of re-writing the same story. I mean, he's rewritten Gap about five times now. Every other book is about a writer. Yeah. Which, of course, you're told not to do. Don't write books with writers. Readers don't want to read that. Well, we're all still reading Irving. Absolutely, you know? yeah. But it's the character of Owen Meany, though, that, that really sets that book apart for me. From I love all of his books, but there's never been a character like Owen.
0: Because again, when I was, <coughs> I'd read it a few years ago. But when I was, when I got your list and I was doing, kind of just googling back to refresh my memory, and, and one of the things I read, they mentioned, I don't know if you've ever read a book called *The Tin Drum* by no, Gunther no, Grass, I which apparently slightly influenced them. Yeah, it's kind of set in Germany, and it's kind of, again, a kind of strange character who's yeah. the main character, Oscar. Uh, that is well worth if reading as well. Maybe yeah. slightly darker, I think, than *A Prayer for Owen Meany*. Uh-huh. But it's a, it's a great book as well.
1: Uh-huh does seem to have quite a lot of influences and he's got all sorts of tropes, that, things that just keep it reappearing in his books and one of them that I always find quite disturbing. There's always at least one parent dies, uh, usually in a bizarre way, like in Owen the mother gets hit by a baseball, hit by Owen <laughs> which for some reason brings the boys closer together instead of further apart. But yet there's, there's a bear usually appears at some point, there's wrestling, these things, all, and at some point somebody goes to Vienna. <laughs> virtually every job yeah, and that's, book, really somebody goes that, yeah. to Vienna because he did he lived in Vienna for quite a long time
0: right what you know so, I suppose yeah exactly, yeah exactly I mean you mentioned the fact that you packed your suitcase full of 16 yeah, books lots of books so when when the advent of uh, Kindles for example yeah. is that, was that a godsend for you going on holiday or do you still I mean obviously people would still prefer the physical yeah. but, but sometimes to help with your luggage allowance it's quite good just yeah. if you can take a Kindle
1: yeah we, we all got Kindles and we used them avidly at first and then sort of because the house there are too many books in the house now it's got to the stage now the books are taken over and I did promise recently that I was going to have a clear out but I did say I'm only going to clear out the books that I'll never read again and that's not going to be a massive it's not going to it's require difficult. the amount of boxes that my husband's left for me put it <laughs> that way. he was been optimistic yeah it's a
0: difficult because uh, I had cleared out some of my bookshelves recently and again it was it's books hard. that I thought I would never read again and you know it's difficult trying to Dang. because you you always think particularly if you remember a book that you've enjoyed and you think Absolutely. I might I might get back to that at some point you know
1: yeah and I'll, what I said was I'll keep the, like people like um, Irving or Ali Smith or Brick any anybody that will bought all of their books but we'll keep those because those are in collections and I mean you couldn't split them up and yeah and you can see him looking at me thinking that oh, none of these books are going anywhere.
0: Because I always wonder, like <laughs> my books I don't know one of my daughters is a, an avid reader and most two kids don't really read much so I think either she'll get all the books or, yeah. or they'll, be, they'll all be going to charity shops at yeah. one point. But
1: I've got one son who reads and one who doesn't and the one who reads is very much uh, inclined towards like fantasy mm-hmm. that kind of thing so most of the books I've got wouldn't particularly interest them. It's
0: like a, a thing I've I'm always curious to find out because, as I say, my middle daughters, they have read. My oldest daughter reads a bit, my son doesn't read at oh, all. That doesn't bother me at all. I'm, no. I'm completely, because I, I know people who, it's almost like a disappointment. I'm thinking, well, that's my life. My interest his books, his is other things. Yeah. How, how do you feel with your son, one that reads and one that doesn't? Absolutely
1: fine. I mean, when they were both small, we read to them all the time. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so they were brought up with books, uh, they were brought up seeing us read and uh, my mother lives with us as well, and she just reads constantly. So they were always surrounded by people who read. So if it was going to happen, it was going to happen. Uh, and for the oldest one, it didn't actually for quite a long time. I think, like most boys his age, it was Harry Potter, Yeah. first of all. So thank you, J.K. Rowling, that got so many kids into reading. But then he did get a bit more adventurous, and he, he read various things for school that he enjoyed. But he, he is inclined to go back to... He likes fantasy, he likes that complete escapism. He doesn't necessarily want to read something that's bleak. And so what age is He's 25 now.
0: Because I, I reckon that the kids, my daughter's 27, so I reckon kids in that era that her into reading, I'd say almost without fail, it's Harry Potter, Harry Potter yeah. that got them into absolutely, it.
1: Absolutely.
0: So we can forgive J.K. Rowling her politics slightly <laughs> because she encouraged she, she the whole generation. She,
1: she has done a lot. Slightly, I done a lot. Yeah,
0: <laughs> she has. you are listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy, and my guest, the writer, Carl Jones. And we're on to question number four, Carl. And <laughs> this is a book that you couldn't be paid to read again. And it's not so much a book as a whole, no, whole... raft of yes,
1: Yes, it's just one author, Ian McEwan. Uh, and among my writing friends this really does this is the one that splits us down the middle so th- it, and he, it's love or hate I've never met anyone who's read an Ian McEwan book and said yeah it was okay or I quite liked it it was either oh I love him and I'm going to read all these books or I cannot abide these stories and that is the way I feel about him and I think the one I went for was Atonement I think it was oh, Enduring, Revolver, enduring, enduring love. love but you said yeah, it it could, have been, it, it could have been any of them so I think Enduring Love was the first one I read. What I don't like about him, I appreciate the craft, I appreciate that the man is a superb writer, but all of his characters are unlikable. If I think something's bad is going to happen to them, I'm actually looking forward to it. I never root for any of his characters. There's not one in any book of his I've read that I've thought, well, I hope things turn out OK for her or him. I just want terrible things to happen to all of them. I just feel they deserve it. But I think that might be a classism thing again. I think yeah. it's because they are so, at the least, upper middle class, mainly upper class. Everything about them just seems whiny and overthought.
0: Would you still and read these books, even though they obviously they don't agree I, with
1: no, you? I do. And people keep saying, "Oh, I'll try on Chesil Beach," or "Try this," or "Try that." I say, "No, I've tried. I've done it. I've given them. I've given them two books, and I think that's." I, yeah, I think if you read a book by someone and you really hate it the way I did in During Love, to give them another go, that t- and I only did it because so many people told me, no, 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 you will, you'll love it. So I bought Atonement, didn't love it. <laughs> Again, lots and lots of fiery people and people doing terrible things to each other. And it's just, it's not nice. But then I watched the film and I loved the film, which is quite unusual. Yeah. That's happened to me twice, happened to me with Life of Pie.
0: Cause normally, well. I mean, the normal rule of thumb is that the book's better than the film, always. Yeah,
1: but I read Life of Pi and I wasn't nuts in Life of Pi either, despite everything all of you wrote about it at the time. Everybody loved it. I just was reading it thinking, Chapter 27 still in the boat, <sighs> you know, that was the way it got me. It yeah. just I just found it a bit dull, but again, loved the film. So, I don't know, I don't know why I loved the film of Atonement so much. It shocked me how much I loved it, and I. I didn't choose to watch it it was my husband going to the DVD shop one night he came back not knowing that I had read and hated this book. I was like oh my god he'd got it because Keira Knightley was in it basically <laughs> um, and we watched it and he, he was saying I haven't read this I'll need to read it it's really good I'm saying oh, the book's terrible this is good yeah. this is good you know? so, but I think that is I think I am being a wee bit which
0: I've never actually have to confess I've never read I've never any McCune
1: book but I see I do think I do worry sometimes that I am just basing it purely on on class distinctions that I can't relate to these people. I felt the same with On Beauty. I read On Beauty and I thought, I hate all of these people. They've got nothing to complain about. And they're all whining. <laughs> just annoyed me. And I don't mean, I don't need a book where everybody's lovely and smiley and nice and nobody fights with That mm-hmm. wouldn't be a book. That would be a, just a boring article. But give me one person. I think it was Humphrey Bogart <laughs> who was famous for, if he was ever playing a baddie, saying, at some point, at least let me pat a dog. <laughs> Aye, so you know, some I have redeeming to be quality, human. I yeah. have to be human. I can't be a monster because then I wouldn't be real. And that's how I feel about McEwen's characters. I never I just cannot take to any of them.
0: But that's a, I suppose as well, that's the beauty of books, that yeah you know, even if everyone else you know is saying, This book's great, this book's great yeah. or vice versa, you're telling everybody there's no guarantee yeah. that everybody's gonna like it's everything's subjective, yeah, which I, I think I always think that's a great thing. It is
1: and I've got friends who don't understand my love for own Friends who read really? it with Oh yeah, friends I think it's the most the the start of it's boring, the narrator's boring. And I thing I have noticed since learning a bit about creative writing. At the time when I read Owen Meany I hadn't written anything since I was about eighteen. So when I read Owen Meany eh, I didn't notice this, but it is a quick of John Irvings that is now beginning to get to me a little bit. He uses an awful lot of bracketed authorial interventions. Right. Which once you notice it becomes this tick that you can't stop seeing. Yeah, that irritates you. And you'll you know, tell people, saying, never use brackets, that is authorial intervention, don't do it, you're taking the reader out of the story. And it does happen now when I'm reading I think, he's done that again.
0: Because <laughs> I'm always worried. Sometimes you when know, I mentioned cone gatherers earlier on, and I, I have over the years, any time I've ever in a, a charity shop or and I see a copy, I always buy it and then I'll pass it on to someone. Oh, right. And I always want, you know, you always want people to love it. The other book is The Road by Cornwall McCarthy. Yeah which just absolutely blew me away. And, and any time I've given it to somebody, you know, you, you want them to, to love it. And I know yeah. that isn't necessarily going to be the case, but then I'm, part of me is thinking, well, why why don't you why, love that? I, it's, I, it's just and perfect. then you, but you
1: also question why you care so much. It's as though you wrote it. You know, yeah. you, you become so obsessed with it. as part of you, it's part of your life. I've actually got two copies. <laughs> I've got one that I've read and reread about 12 times, and it's all sellotaped together. And then I've got a pristine one that's signed by the man himself. Right, I, was, wow. I went to see him at Edinburgh Book Festival, and I got the copy signed, and it's wrapped in tissue paper at the back of a drawer, that's, under yeah, woolly things. It's definitely not getting put in the cardboard box. It's not getting read. Because <laughs> the other side
0: of that is the print. Do you ever feel, if somebody recommends a book to you that they really love... Yeah. Do, do you feel pressure? I feel really that?
1: guilty if I don't like it I, and I'll try and find some, unless it's Ian McEwan, I'll try and find some... <laughs> I'm some sure rede- your friends have stopped recommending <laughs> his books to you. I'll try and find some redeeming quality or I'll just do the the really annoying, you know, it's just not my kind of thing. Yeah. Though, though I'm glad that you love it, you know, which is patronising. But I, I don't like, it because I know how it feels, as you say, I know how it feels if I love something and it shocks me if yeah. somebody else can't see. I suppose of it's
0: of the same, you know, if you've got certain music that you you like or yeah. films or T V yeah. you, you know it's if everybody had the same tastes yeah. then what would we yeah. what would we discuss or argue about? <laughs> and how how would we know we're better than some people? <laughs> <laughs> well we're on to the the fifth and final question for you, Carl, and that is <laughs> Either the last book you read or the book that you're currently reading. And (laughs) you kind of, before we we started recording this, you kind of slightly explained what this book is, but I'm really intrigued for you to to let me know what what the book is.
1: Yeah. So the book is called Most of a Novel in Progress by a writer called Bella de la Roche. Now, the first thing I have to say is that Bella de la Roche, uh, she has a fantastic blog, and I would recommend anybody who likes A Good Laugh just look up Bella De, Roche, Bella De La Roche and go to her blog her blog <laughs> she calls herself writer not a writer it's Bella De La Roche and then there's an asterisk writer right. and then she she explains everything in case you're a wee bit stupid she explains absolutely everything she says and does uh, she misuses whom and who constantly to hilarious effect all the way through um, she's obsessed with she, she sees faces in potatoes. So her blog is also full of potatoes. With She's absolutely convinced. <laughs> but then she she expanded this and she started seeing faces or things in other food. And during the Scottish independence referendum, she bought a chicken breast that she was convinced looked at the map of Scotland. And she tried to convince the Yes campaign to use it.
0: <laughs> Do the thing, is, you can, newspapers are full of... Yeah. That's brilliant. But
1: she wrote to them and she offered for a fee.
0: (laughs) Did she Um, get a reply?
1: (laughs) She gets replies from everyone. This is what's wonderful. People humour her all the time because she comes across as so sort of gauche and innocent and just naive. So Bella how, much, de la Roche, how much
0: did um, Scotland, did the chicken look like?
1: I think they just sort of said, that's lovely, we'll think about it. You know? But it did look like, it did genuinely. I, I think there might have been some fashioning. Be I think it might have been helped. Right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> there might have been a wee bit of poking and prodding to the chicken to make it look like Scotland. But Bella de la Roche is not a real person. She's a, a creation of an excellent writer who I'm not allowed to name, but a, a genuinely brilliant short story writer who's been published all over the place, like the Breadport and the and whatever. I mean, really? she's, she's a fantastic writer. Uh, and she created Bella just to give herself something to do at one point, and then it just took off. I mean, it sounds like a brilliant laugh. It's absolutely superb. So all the way through the book, the book is, if you were writing a novel, you would leave yourself notes. They would check this fact yeah. or whatever. So in this, she's left all of these notes in.
0: Everything's out.
1: Everything's out. Every single step of the process. So the novel is about a character called Chauncey, and Chauncey appeared to Bella as an apparition at the end of her bed one day, seeking her to write his story. And he he, he conveyed this to her through his painful eyes, his green (laughs) eyes that were full of pain. And she says that she's the only writer who a character has ever personally sought out to write their story. So it's part of a novel because unfortunately Chauncey has now disappeared and he hasn't come to Bela for quite some time. But instead of waiting for him to come back and finish the novel, she decided that we all had to just have this novel now. And I put a wee marker in, I'll see if I can find it. This is just an example of the sort of... So he's got a dog called Sadie and they're a crime-fighting team, Chauncey and Sadie. So the stench determinedly hangs on to their tiny nostril hairs like... And then she. This is an authorial note she's got in brackets. Think of metaphor later. <laughs> and then next to that is another bracket that says also check if dogs have nostril <laughs> hair. So it's just full of all of these lovely I wee. Mean, writers sites. would absolutely love that. Writers adore it. it. She she brought it out uh, early this year and it went mad on Twitter. I mean everybody just loved it, and everybody treats it very seriously. We all do reviews of it as though Bella is the real deal. Right. Uh, and she also she'll. She'll teach writing, which is just the best thing ever. Bella teaching you how to write. Uh, she teaches you how to write excitement, and you've never seen so many exclamation marks. <laughs> it's just everything you're not meant to do, Bella does. So, yeah, I mean, I would recommend the book to every writer, just would yeah. howl and laugh at it. But you don't anybody would love it. I mean, my husband read it, and I could hear him laughing. I
0: mean, just that one line. It's just. Everybody who's ever written anything yeah. has done that. It's yeah. put... Brackets, capital letters, yeah, bold right. up. So know. they're
1: all in here. Everything's in there. Brilliant. She's superb. She's absolutely superb. That's a,
0: I mean, that takes an extraordinary level of skill as well to, yeah. to almost be that mocking of that kind of whole process. Is.
1: And the terrible thing is that she writes a blog and she does these things and you'll read it and every now and again you'll go, I do that, I think she's talking about me now. <laughs> and I've said to her in the past, was that about me? No, it's about all of us. You know, it's all writers. We all do these stupid things at some point. It's just the Bella has never stopped.
0: And part of your enjoyment is the fact that you know you know who. It I is know or. the
1: person personally. Um, it possibly is because uh, her own writing. I say she's a fantastic writer, but she's got such an amazing sense of humour when you meet her personally, and she doesn't. That doesn't come across in a lot of particularly prize-winning stories because this is a constant bugbear of mine. Uh, competitions do not want humour. They tell you they do. They don't. Judges will tell you. I've had competition judges contact me personally to say, "Thanks so much for sending in that funny story. It was really funny. It was a great break from all the death and destruction, you know." But you're not getting a prize because humour's not prized. So is that this just is the what the pretension I love. of competitions or? It is. I think, and I think there's this misconception that humour's easy, and it's one of the most difficult things to write. I
0: would say it's the hardest because yeah. if you get it wrong, it's, it's a, I suppose it's a bit like a stand-up, standing up and dying on stage. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. what would happen that to That is you.
1: what happens. Humour is hard and if you can do it, if you can do it as well as I almost said the real name, Bella does. It's
0: <laughs> um, all right, if, if you had we would you should, that out. You so. do it. Um,
1: but I say, she knows, she knows that she's not going to, if, if there are submission calls or competitions, she knows that she could write some of the funniest things ever but it's kind of pointless. So this is a, a good segue if you've got the time and energy to put in the way she has to create this entire character. And I see the blog posts are just... She submits to magazines. She decided to do one to cat monthly and suggested putting your cat on wheels and moving it around into the shade when it was too hot and back in. <laughs> the sun. And she does this as though this is a viable like, Dragon's Den idea. <laughs> And if anybody comes back to her, if any publication comes back to her with even the slightest note, just thank you for submitting, mm-hmm. she'll come on Twitter right away and say, I've had interest in a possible commission. <laughs> <laughs> so she's just this overexcited
0: <laughs> creature. I mean, that is, that's a brilliant it's creation. It's
1: fantastic. She's such a great I And mean, That in
0: itself, that's a TV creation. That's a yes. character. That's, yes. that's okay. genius.
1: Or a serious writing magazine should give Bella a monthly call. It yeah. would just be Fantastic it would be amazing,
0: and all writers would love it. Brilliant, well, I'm, I'm definitely, that's another one, just on this podcast alone, I've got more books to read. Um, good, good, and I've got one. You, you mentioned there just about, you know, obviously submissions, and I know you, you yeah. submit to a lot of uh, different competitions, different yep. platforms, and is it sometimes encouraging, sometimes disheartening, because, it, you know, the nature of writing is that you, for every encouragement, there's sometimes rejection yeah. as well, and that's just part of this, suppose, the process.
1: Um, I'm used to it now, put it that way. When I first started, yeah, it was devastating. The first few rejections that came in, I was well, like, that's it, I'm terrible, I may as well just stop this now. Hmm. And obviously, you've got to stop and think, OK, well, for example, the Commonwealth Short Story competition, over 5,000 entrants. The odds are so stacked against you. And I've entered that competition for years, and this year I've got on the long list, which is 200. Top 200 out of 5,000. Yeah, You'll that take that. You'll it? take that. You'll say, well, that's good. I will always th- add... Still not won a prize though. <laughs> you know, when I have, I did win, I was I think, third place with Miss Alexia in 2010 and I do tend to get to shortlists and like, flash fiction, I get to their shortlists and again you're the top 20 of 900 and it's great but you're still not one of those top three, yeah. and it can get a bit soul destroying, but then you've got to just keep saying to yourself, But you're still in that top 1%, you're hitting that top percentage. And when you get to that 10. level,
0: it's just fine margins because it you don't, absolutely. you know, then it's just somebody's taste, personal taste.
1: Yeah. Or I've judged the competition before and I know how difficult it is. When you get to your final 10, you want them all to win, you genuinely do. So you, you're actively looking for things that are wrong, you're looking for the tiniest thing that will just place one story. A slight, even quarter of a point above the others to say that's my winner. I have to say that when I did judge, uh, I do tend to pick the winner the first time I read it. I'll know, and it rarely changes. I can read another 500 stories, but say that one will still be in my head. So yeah, um, I've been on both sides of it, so I do know how hard it is, and I do try to keep that in mind when I'm cursing and stumping up and down, stomping up and down the hall, saying it's happened again. But,
0: <laughs> when, you know when it, when, it, when it does come and you win one of these. Sort of major prizes. Then the the, the joy of that, given yeah. everything that's gone before, will probably be even yeah even more
1: yeah one day one day and the bank balance will be a bit healthier as well.
0: <laughs> and when I mentioned about you writing the the novel in in terms of flash a flash fiction, yes. novel, how how's that coming on?
1: It's all right. Um, I thought I had finally cracked who the narr- who the character that was going to link them all. That's so what, that was a tweet that I that saw you. That, I was fairly sure that she had finally. And I'm sounding like Bella now, had presented herself to me. I was fairly (laughs) sure that I finally got her. And now I'm not quite as sure anymore. So the one I'm... Oh, no, I actually can't. Well, I can It's set in the the village in Muirhead. I I write a lot of uh, stories about our village. I don't know if you've ever been in Muirhead. There used to be a massive sign, which because we grew up with it, we kind of stopped noticing it. But it said things like, the wages of sin is death. He died for our sins. Very occasionally you would get a nice God is love. But we. All, it, it dawned on me, I think it was probably in my early teens, just on the bus one day thinking, people driving through this village must think we're all mad that this is some sort of strange wee cult. Yeah. And I kind of became obsessed with the sign after that and then I started writing about it. So I've written loads of stories where the sign is the thing. So it will continue to be a major part of the Novella. It was just finding the characters to go with the sign right.
0: <laughs> We're looking forward in twenty twenty to hopefully coming to fruition. Hopefully. <laughs> well, listen, we'll look forward to that. But thanks very much for, for joining us, and It's been great to hear your your choices, I'm definitely going to be checking out Bella. <laughs> Bella's novel now. Is a everybody, writer.
1: everybody has to check out Bella.
0: <laughs> but thanks very much. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast, and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at Podcast, or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddehy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.